This week is the last week we're going to be in the Psalter. Um, Psalms 19, I hope uh, you have been encouraged this summer and enjoyed, uh, I know I have, being in the Psalms this summer. Today we're going to be looking at Psalms 19, which is arguably one of the greatest Psalms ever written. In fact, C.S. Lewis, who, uh, if you don't know who that is, um, is, a, is a, was a great Christian intellect. But more than anything else, I don't know if Christians who love his books realize this, he, he was a mighty authority on literature. He held the chair of medieval and Renaissance literature at Cambridge University. And this is what he said about Psalms 19. I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics ever written in the world. C.S. Lewis claimed that Psalms 19 is the greatest poem ever written. And that's by someone that uh, knows his poems. Therefore, I feel like we're ending the summer on a high note here. Um, so let's take a look at the Psalms. And I want to start by looking at the superscription, which, which says to the chief musician, a Psalm of David. David is the author of the Psalms. We really don't know much about why or when he wrote the Psalms, but there is a, there is a clear outline to the Psalm. Three points that will be the three points of the sermon this morning. The first point is this, the revelation of cre- creation. The revelation of creation, or what we will say, and I'll explain this in a little bit, general revelation. The second point will be the revelation of Scripture, which will be special revelation, And the third point is the prayer of forgiveness, the prayer for forgiveness. So point number one, the revelation of creation. Point two, the revelation of scripture. And point three, the prayer for forgiveness. So let's look at this first point this morning. Psalms 19, verse 1, the revelation of creation. Verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. This is the same statement reworded differently twice in a row. In the center of this statement, we don't see this really in English very well, but the center of it is God. Actually, if you translated this more word for word, it doesn't come across in English just how we do word order, but it would say something like this. The heavens declare the glory of God. His works of his hand is reported by the sky. In other words, the center of of this couplet is, is the glory of God and the works of his hands, which, which is a poetic way of telling us that it all points to God. The heavens and the sky declare and proclaim God. They scream God. We are blessed to live in a beautiful place. I, I think Tatchby is beautiful. It's kind of dead and dry this time of year but it's pretty. I love the sunsets when there's clouds in the sky and, and it may be smog, but it looks beautiful when it's pink. <laughs> that comes from Bakersfield, not to Hatchby. Or super clear days when you see the white clouds in contrast with the blue sky or the mountains, the blue, just the contrast is beautiful. Or at night where you can actually see the stars here. Look at verse 2. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. 
reveals knowledge. That word reveals is where we get the word revelation from. The revelation of God, it's God revealing something. Creation reveals knowledge. And what does it reveal? We'll look at verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. Creation reveals two things. There is a God. And two, he is glorious. Theologians call this the the revelation, what is revealed by creation, general revelation. It's revelation from creation. It's general because it's it's for everyone. Everyone can see creation and, and the knowledge it reveals. You know what, I was thinking about this. It's actually, I didn't plan this, um, so I won't take credit. The Holy Spirit did. Um, this is a perfect psalm to, to go over as we get ready for back to school. Right? The busy, stressful time of year where everything starts to pick up. General revelation is what we learned in school. That's why we should be excited for our kids to, to go to school. Kids get to learn about God's creation. Every subject should tell us something about God. Every subject declares the glory of God. Let me just give you an example. Why should I study math? Have you ever heard that question before? Have you ever asked that question before? Here's why. It points to God. You know, just to be honest, we're kind of starting the school with Autumn, and I'm excited to, to, it's one of the reasons I'm really excited for homeschooling, is because I can't wait for her to ask this question. Why are we doing this? Because it points to God. Math shows God is orderly. It shows, yet yeah, even in that order, he's infinitely complex. I mean, math helps us see the, the complexity of an infinite God. Infinitely complex, yes, yet rational. Math also helps us understand God's size. The Bible's clear that God is infinite, but, but how do you know what infinite is? How would you know what it is if you didn't know what one is? Or if you didn't know what one times a hundred is, or a hundred times a hundred, or a million times a million, or a million to the millionth power, or a million to the trillionth power. Whatever that number is, God is infinitely bigger than that. Or art. You see the creativity of God or the creativity of man who is made in the image of God and that creativity coming out in art. Or history, where we see the depravity of man. War after war after war, the history of man. 20th century, over 100 million people killed in wars. We see the history, we see this just pure evil, but we also see glimpses of good. And that's because man was made in the image of God. That's why I love stories of World War II, because you, it's just so clear the depravity of man. We're faced with evil in World War II, but at the same time we see these glimpses of good. Man made in the image of God, men and women risking their lives to save others. Or earth, earth science. Ever just thought about how amazing rain is? Water, separated from salt, which... That's not easy, otherwise we would never be in a drought in California. Water, separated from salt, gently lifted into clouds, currents in the air, bringing the clouds over land, and God gently sprinkling water on us. 
I Google searched how much rain is in a cloud. I'm not a scientist, so take this up with Google if you disagree with this. This is what Google says. Scientists estimate that one inch of rain falling over an area of one square mile. That's a lot of rain in a very little area, though. One square mile is equivalent to 17.4 million gallons of water. That much water weighs 143 million pounds. And God gently sprinkles it on us in puffy white clouds. Or biology. I love watching, like, planet Earth, and we do that as a family. Um, It's just incredible. I mean, just think. Let's not even— just think of the most simple creature there is. The most simple creature that's out there. The simple cell, which is a horrible name, right? Because it's extremely complex. DNA strands with, within the cell, programmed information, microscopic machines making things from this programmed information. Incredible. And I said this two weeks ago. There's 37 trillion cells in the human body. Or astronomy. This is my favorite. Look at verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. Just the sheer size of the heavens, the sheer size of the universe is incredible. The Milky Way is 100,000 light years across, which sounds like, yeah, that's not that big. 100,000? I know that number. Well, what is a light year? This is Wikipedia, so take it up with Wikipedia. Again, I'm not a scientist. A unit of astronomical distance equivalent to the distance light travels in one year. In other words, how far does light travel in one year? Well, it travels six trillion miles. So the Milky Way is 100,000 times six trillion miles across. And it has 300 billion stars And that's one galaxy. How many galaxies are there? Well, scientists of what we know of right now think there's approximately 100 billion galaxies. You feeling small? How about this? God spoke that into existence. Let there be stars, boom. I heard an atheist once mocking Christianity and the idea of creation. And he said, if God truly made this universe and how big it is, and and most of his focus, if not all of his focus, is on Earth, doesn't that seem like a waste of space? Like, why would he do that? It's not a waste of space. It all has a purpose. Look at verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. He put it out there just to say, look how big I am. So we would know, I love Genesis, the creation of the stars, the biggest, most powerful, most awesome things in all of creation. And this is what it says, Genesis 1.16, And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, that's the sun, the lesser light to rule the night, that's the moon, and the stars. That's like all we get, and the stars. Three words, boom, the stars. It's incredible. It all declares the glory of God. It screams God is glorious. Look at verse 2. Day to day, general revelation, creation, pours out speech and night to night 
reveals knowledge about God. But look at verse 3. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. What do you mean there's no speech? You just said there was, verse 2, day-to-day pours out speech. And look at verse 4. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. What's up with verse 3? I mean, it seems to be saying something completely opposite to verse 2 and 4. What's up with verse 3? Well, this is what's up with verse 3. Even though creation, general revelation, reveals knowledge about God... It does it without words. It speaks, verse 2 and verse 4, but it speaks without words, verse 3. It's a poetic way of saying this. It speaks, verse 2. It doesn't speak, verse 3. It speaks, verse 4. Look at verse 4 again. Their voice, that's the heavens, that's creation. It goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Creation reveals God to everyone without words. And look at the second part of verse 4. In them he has set for the, or set a tent for the sun. The focus of the psalm turns and now it's on the sun. Why the sun? Because it's big. It's powerful. I mean, we can't even look at it. I mean, the stars are, are far away. And you can barely see them. They're not that intimidating, but the sun, we can see and feel the sun. David has given us an example of general revelation. Look at this again. It says, In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its cha- his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. David's talking about the sunrise and the sunset and the course of the sun throughout the day. Have you ever been just blown away by the sunrise? It's a tradition at Hume with all the high schoolers that the last night we, we, I get them up at like 4.30 even though the sun doesn't get, come up to like 6.15. It's kind of my joke. Um, and uh, we sit out there and it's, it's cold in Hume Lake even in July um, just waiting and it's just calm. Right? The lake is, is like glass and we sit there and wait and wait and wait. And when that sun comes over the mountains, it's the Keynes Canyon, and so it comes over the top of the Sierra Nevadas. It's just like, boom. Beautiful. Look at verse 6. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and in its circuit to um, to the ends of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. I mean, think about that. The sun, 93 million miles away, and you'll get burned by it. I mean, how hot is that? And not, it's not like it's like focused on you. It heats up the whole earth. David is saying for, for how amazing the sun is, God made it. God controls it. God runs its course. General, general, general revelation, creation screams, God is glorious. But I want you to look at verse 3 again. Because verse 3 is really meant to grab your attention through all the first part of the psalm. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Remember, creation speaks, but it speaks without words. Therefore, it's limited. 
general revelation is, is limited. For how much it reveals, it's not enough. The problem with general revelation is it's not enough. If you, if you would keep like a bookmarker in Psalms 19, we're going to come back to it. But turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Most theologians and commentators think that Paul, who wrote Romans, had Psalms 19 on his mind when he wrote Romans 1, verses 18 through 23. Romans 1, 18, it says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. General revelation reveals knowledge. It proclaims the glory of God and it shows us that we are not in right standing with God. That there's something wrong. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. What does man do with this knowledge? He suppresses the truth. He suppresses the knowledge. That word suppress in Greek is actually like taking a, it gives the idea of like taking a basketball or volleyball in a pool and, and trying to push it underwater. And the basketball wanting to try to pop up and actually like slipping and hitting you in the face, and you grab it and put it down, and it slips and pops up again. That's, that's the knowledge that's being revealed by creation, and man in his, in his depravity grabbing that knowledge and pushing it down and trying to suppress it and not listen to it. No, there is no God in getting hit in the face when they see a sunrise. Verse 19. What can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, in other words, general revelation is, is plain to them. That's what Psalms 19 is telling us. Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. General revelation reveals to everyone, general, everyone, that there is a God, that he's big and powerful and glorious, and we are not in right standing with him. Therefore, man is without excuse. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. General revelation is great, but it's not enough. It doesn't show us the way to salvation. Therefore, we need something else. We need something that makes sense of general revelation. Something that makes sense of math, history, art, science, astronomy, or, um, physics, biology. We need something that makes sense of suffering, good, evil, the sinfulness of man, life, our journey, death. We need something clearer. We need something with words. We need special revelation, and that word special revelation points to Scripture. God revealing specially to his people with words. So turn back to Psalms 19, 
verse 7. This leads us to our second point this morning. The revelation of Scripture. Verse 7 says this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Now there's a major change that happens that we don't see very well in English here. Verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The word for God here is El, which is the generic name for God. It's a name that the pagans used. And that's because the heavens tell us that there is a God and that he is powerful, and every pagan knows that. That's why every people group has worshipped some kind of God generically. But look at verse 7. The law, which is Scripture... Scripture, the law of the Lord, that's a capital L-O-R-D, which we've talked about, means that that's God's name, Yahweh. It's God's covenant name. It's a name that, that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. It's a name that shows intimacy. It's God's personal name that he's revealed to man. The law, in other words, Scripture brings an intimacy with God, a closeness General revelation lets us know that there is a God, and that's why it's L in verses 1 through 6. But the law, God's word, lets us know who God is, Yahweh. And it tells us how to have a relationship with him. Lord, L-O-R-D, Yahweh, is used seven times from this point on. Look at verse 7. The law of the Lord, the testimonies of the Lord. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, Verse 9, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. And look at verse 14, the second part. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Special revelation, scripture, the Bible, brings intimacy with the Lord. Special revelation, I want you to just think about this, is God's intimate thoughts shared with his people. Look at verse 7. The law of the Lord, that's Yahweh, is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. These three verses, David is proclaiming why special revelation is so much better than just general revelation. For how awesome creation is, for how much creation teaches us about God, we would be lost without special revelation, without scripture. Honestly, we could spend a whole sermon series on these three verses, but instead, let me just give you four reasons why the word of the Lord is better than general revelation first one is this. It fills in the gaps. General revelation, again, tells us a lot. tells us a lot about, about God, but it leaves us with questions. What is God like? What happens after death? Why is there so much evil in this world? How can I be saved? Special revelation answers all those questions. Second, special revelation is clearer than general revelation. General revelation and creation and what it tells us about God can be easily misinterpreted. That's what Romans 1 is saying when, when man takes that and suppresses it. Special revelation, scripture is clear. 
It's so clear that, that a five-year-old can understand it, yet so deep that we spend so much time, spend a whole life studying it. Verse 7, it's perfect, it's sure. Verse 8, it's right, it's pure. Verse 9, it's clean, it's true, and righteous altogether. Third, special revelation is comprehensive and sufficient. Look at the synonyms that, that is used for God's word. The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts, the commandments, the fear, the rules of the Lord. They're all synonyms of special revelation. David's trying to get across the idea that special revelation is comprehensive and complete. In other words, it's all we need. Because it's so comprehensive, this is what one theologian said. These synonyms are not to be studied in abstraction, but give a comprehensive emphasis that all of the words of the Lord are beneficial. Although the benefits of natural revelation are with us on a daily basis, that's verses 1 through 6, how much greater are the comprehensive benefits of God's revealed law? And fourth, this is the most important. Special revelation shows us the way to salvation. It shows us the way to salvation. The way of the righteous, Psalms 2. Or the way of everlasting, Psalms 139. General revelation can't do this. We need special revelation. We need the word of God. We need God to speak clearly to us in words. That's why Romans 1.16 says this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel, that word just means good news. It's news. It's revelation to us. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Two weeks ago, I talked about Job as being the oldest book of scripture. Most people, most theologians and historians think Job is probably the, most, the oldest book of scripture. It's of course, the Pentateuch talks about a time before Job. Mos- or Moses wrote that, but Job was written before the Pentateuch. Does that make sense? Because it's the oldest book of Scripture, a lot of theologians think you should look at it as an introduction to the Bible as a whole, showing really a need for special revelation. Hold on. I just want you to think about the book of Job. Most of us know the story um, of Job and God talking to Satan, having this conversation. Have you considered my servant Job? And this whole story of Job losing everything and not cursing God. You know, all of that is in chapters 1 and 2. And the book of Job is 42 chapters long. Most of Job, chapters 3 through 31, is man's attempt to explain reality and failing. Reality was Job lost his fortune, lost his family, was critically ill. And Job's three friends, which one was a scientist, one was a historian, and one was a philosopher, the smartest men of their day, trying to explain why this was happening to Job, and can't. They can't do it. They thought if anyone shouldn't suffer, it would be a righteous man. And if anyone could handle suffering, it would be a rich man. Yet the reader gets the privilege of seeing behind the scenes. 
God reveals that there's more to the story than what just meets the eye. And we wouldn't know any of it. We wouldn't know this conversation with Satan, what was going on, if God didn't reveal it to us through special revelation. Job of, or the, the book of Job really shows us two things. Without God's revelation, we are completely and utterly lost. Man's best guesses fall short. The smartest men in the world can't explain the most important questions. Second, the book of Job shows us that God's special revelation teaches us truths we would never have known without him revealing it to us. We never would have known this conversation between God and Satan and what was going on behind the scenes. It's almost like God pulled back the curtain to show us a behind-the-scenes look of what was going on in this circumstance. And when God pulls back the curtain, we see something we would never have guessed. God's favor is not based off of works. God's favor is not based off of works. Job's three friends, their worldview was that if you do good, God rewards you. If you do bad, God punishes you. The three friends represent every single religion outside of Christianity in the history of mankind. All works-based. Christianity is the only different religion that's ever been. The only reason Christianity is different than every other religion that's ever been is because God has shown us that it's not works-based. It's purely by the grace of God that we are saved. When God pulls back the, the curtain in Scripture, we see first, sometimes righteous people suffer in this life. Not the next, but in this life. And second, grace is an unearned gift. Being good will not save you. Being good will not bring you into a relationship with God. It's purely by the grace of God that we are saved. And you know, as a side note, we're going to dive deeply into this when we get to Ephesians. Ephesians 1 and 2, when we study Ephesians 1 and 2, God pulls back the curtain and it goes completely against our human instincts. Special revelation reveals so much, therefore it is valuable. Look at verse 10. More to be desired... Um, or more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and dippings of the honeycomb. Let me just ask the question, do you feel this way? More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold? Let me ask a harder question. Does your life reflect this? Do you treasure God's word? Let me ask another question because I think this will help us understand why it's a treasure. If God's word leads to joy, isn't it worth more than anything? Isn't joy and happiness why men seek wealth? True joy is only found in a relationship with God. And God's word is what shows us the way to that true joy. Look at verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them is their great reward. Scripture reveals blessings, great rewards, 
you listen to it, if you trust God and follow him, and there's warning, there's great consequences if you don't. So what should our response be to all of this? General revelation, as David's talking about, this, this revelation that reveals that God is glorious, he's powerful, he's huge, he's creative, he's just. Special revelation, God's word, which reveals that God is merciful, gracious, patient, yet still holy and just. How should we respond to this great God? With humility and repentance. That leads to the final point. Prayer for forgiveness. Look at verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Revelation, creation, what creation reveals to us and what God's word reveals to us, they they both tell us that we're not in right standing with God. Everyone has sinned and rebelled against a great, holy, just God. Therefore, our only hope, our only response is to cry out for mercy. And David is praying, he's pleading for forgiveness, even from hidden faults, sins he's not aware of. And look at verse 13. Keep me, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. In other words, the opposite of hidden sins, arrogant, proud sins. What's David saying? Save me from all sins. And if you do it, look at verse 13. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. David's only hope is God's grace. And that's true for all of us. It's true for all of us. It's by God's grace that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. If you put your faith in him, you can have mercy. You can have grace. It's our only hope. It was David's only hope. And it's your only hope. If you don't know Jesus this morning, if you've never put your faith in him and what he's done, living the perfect life, dying on the cross for our sins, this is the morning. Cry out to God in your heart. Ask for forgiveness. Put your faith in Jesus that he's paid for your sins. That's what we celebrated this morning in communion. David closes this amazing psalm with a prayer. Verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Verse 14 is connecting this psalm, the end of the psalm, to the very beginning. Verse 14 and verse 1 are connected. Look at verse 1. The heavens declare, they they proclaim, they speak, they scream the glory of God. David is saying, let my words do the same. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, in other words, let my thoughts do the same, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The revelation of creation and the revelation of Scripture tell us that we are not in right standing with a glorious, just, holy God. Therefore, they both point us to repentance and crying out for forgiveness and mercy. And the gospel, which is special revelation, reveals to us that that God sent his Son to provide a way for us to that salvation. Therefore, Let that be the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts. I pray that for our church. I pray that for me.
And I pray that for all of you. Let's pray this morning. Lord, my rock and my redeemer, we thank you, God, first of all, for making the earth and the universe an incredible place. That your creativity is on display every time we go and look to nature. The, the incredible animals that are out there. The amazing valleys, the sky, the clouds, Lord. Forgive us as mankind as we deny that you have made those things. That we don't give you credit for that creativity. Forgive us, Lord. I pray that if there's anyone that does not know you this morning, that's here. That they put their faith in you. knowing that your special revelation tells us your son is the only way. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't just leave us with creation, but that you revealed to us that you're not just a God that is holy, glorious, and just, but you also are a God that is loving, merciful, and forgiving. Help us to seek that forgiveness daily. Lord, help us to treasure your word that you have revealed to, to us your, your most intimate thoughts, Lord. Help us to, to, to treasure it more than gold and wealth and fine foods and, and everything else, Lord. Be with us, Lord. I pray our, our church is known for elevating your word, Lord, for treasuring your word, for making it the foundation of who we are. In your son's name, amen.